Thank you for downloading and listening to This Pathological Life. If you're interested in continuing the story, we have a second series called This Medical Life. Please download it and subscribe now. Dr. Travis Brown, why do we need a podcast called This Pathological Life? Every disease has its own story to tell. So we're going to tell them. In this episode of This Pathological Life, we're looking at something, Travis, that I've heard a lot about, but I've never delved into, Mm. Hodgkin's lymphoma. What's made you choose this? Uh, Look, you you realise when you're looking at all the diseases uh, through a textbook that names stick out. Mm-hmm. And so then you see that, well, Hodgkin's lymphoma. And it's not until you well, well, why is it called Hodgkin's? Now, you actually find a whole bunch of names and then you realize it's actually because someone is either named after it. Uh, and, and Hodgkin's lymphoma is, is a distinctive disease and uh, one that affects a lot of adolescents and, and young adults. And so it's quite prominent because you sit there and go, oh, my goodness, this person has cancer. And so then I, I wanted to look, well, well, who is, you know, what is Hodgkin's lymphoma? Who who discovered it? And clearly it was a person by the name of Thomas Hodgkins. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, he was born in, in 1798 and uh, described as a precocious child and uh, a young man who had interest in, you know, geology and mathematics and chemistry, uh, found himself in medicine and then worked his way at that time to pathology and anatomy. Uh, during his studies, he was in, in London and England at the time of those studies, made his way across to Paris during these studies and, and started bumping or rubbing elbows with influential people in medicine. And, and it had an impact on his future. And what he learnt there was to prepare and dissect uh, cadavers and, uh, you know, get specimen pre- preparation in Paris. And so, you know, in 1825, after a a year in Paris, he returns to London. So there was a political struggle between some hospitals. One was St. Thomas and the other one was Guy's Hospital. Uh, They were part of the same group, uh, but there was clearly differences of opinion and they ended up deciding to split. But the problem with that is because people have medical students, they need teaching materials. Well, St. Thomas had a uh, anatomy uh, library that had brains and hearts and stomachs and you know, skeletons to aim to design to teach you know, their medical students. Well, Guy Hospital didn't have any of these. And so there was a problem because then St. Thomas got all the anatomy specimens and Guy Hospital didn't get any. But here comes Thomas Hodgkin from Paris, newly, uh, you know, crowned with exposure in developing uh, autopsies uh, and anatomical specimens. And so it worked out well. So Guy Hospital employed, you know, Thomas Hodgkin uh, in 1825 and then must have been very good at his job because in 1826 they made him the Inspector of the Dead, uh, another title as well as Curator of the Museum of Morbid Anatomy. Wow. Uh, And over the next three years he got over 1,600 specimens to be displayed he described conditions such as the perforated appendix and peritonitis. Uh, he noted the lymphatic spread of cancer and noted the similarity between a tumour and its 
spread inner lymph nodes, was able to see that there was a similar uh, appearance. He even described what was called then a retroversion of the valves of the aorta, what we would call today uh, aortic regurgitation or in insufficiency. Uh, now, the person who's credited with that is a person by the name of Dr. Dominic Corrigan, who did it in 1833, which is about seven or eight years after he's written these information. So he was clearly a remarkable person. Mm, mm. And he was also conducting autopsies. So, in 1832, he presented a paper, and it was called On Some Morbid Appearances of the Absorbent Glands and Spleen. Now, absorbent is what we would term now lymphatic. And he got six patients with their clinical history who died from this disease, and a case from a friend who he called Carswell. The morbid alterations of structure which I'm about to describe are probably familiar to many practical morbid anatomists, since they can scarcely have failed to have fallen under their observation in the course of cadaveric inspection. And he was right. Uh, others had noted enlarged lymph nodes before in, in specimens. Uh, so any infection will, will increase it. You know, other malignant changes will increase it. So it's not unique. <laughs> uh, the difference is that Thomas Hodgkin was the first to hypothesize that this was a primary disease of lymph nodes. So it was coming within it itself. Now, the article didn't become widely known. And even Thomas was understated about the contribution of this paper. A pathological paper may perhaps be thought of of little value if unaccompanied by suggestions designed to assist in the treatment, either curative or palliative. So he didn't. It was just a descriptive uh, paper on six, seven patients who had this pathology. And this was in 1832. And it wasn't until 1865 when a Dr. Wilkes wrote a paper on a similar condition. Now, he called this Lardacious disease. And when he published it, he then became aware of Thomas Hodgkin's paper and then renamed his paper Cases of Enlargement of the Lymphatic Glands and Spleen or Hodgkin's Disease with Remarks, which mm. is quite remarkable when you think about it. And unfortunately, one year later in 1866, that's when Thomas Hodgkins died. Uh, but it was around this time that histology was increasing. So we note that Thomas Hodgkin was doing this all macroscopically. In 1870, we have uh, Tuckwell, who describes an autopsy of a 49-year-old female who had enlarged lymph nodes. And in these lymph nodes... When they looked at them, there were large cells containing these two or three nuclei. And then we have a drawing in 1878 from Greenfield of these cells. And then it's in 1898, we get Carl Sternberg and in 1902, Dorothy Reed, who arrived at a conclusion we believe then, from the descriptions in the literature and the findings in eight cases examined, that Hodgkin's disease has a peculiar and typical histological picture and could thus rightly be considered a histopathological disease entity. So we get our first definitive description of these cells. These are large, giant cells that are cleaved 
or bilobed nuclei. And the description is given of owl eyes glaring sullenly out of the forest of lymph. Wow. So these two people, uh, Carl Sternberg, so he believed that this was a form of tuberculosis. And that's because 18 of the 13 patients that he had studied had TB. Dorothy Reed, however, she emphasized that Hodgkin's was unrelated to TB and used animal inoculation to prove it. So it's important to note that one of the aspects of Hodgkin's lymphoma is its propensity to spread locally. So it will start in a lymph node and then spread to surrounding lymph nodes. Mm -hmm. And today we even use this uh, in a staging. So you have one lymph node area affected, it's a stage one. If you get two lymph node areas separate, stage two. Above and below the diaphragm, at stage three. And if it involves organ, it's stage four. Now, in 1947, we get a classification of this Hodgkin's lymphoma by Jackson and Parker. And so, you know, they put it as Hodgkin's granuloma, you know, the so-called typical cases. There was a different variant of Hodgkin's sarcoma, which had pleomorphic cells and anaplastic Reed Sternberg cells, as they were called now, because they did the description. And then we have Hodgkin's paragranuloma, which was a slow progression and had lots of lymphocytes, but really Reed Sternberg cells were really hard to find. And then 20 years later, we had another group uh, that added heterogeneous granuloma, which we would now know today as nodular sclerosing. And it wasn't until the 1960s that we found the, the cytogenetics of these Reed Sternberg cells and they confirmed that they were the neoplastic ones. With our classification system now, we have five variants, nodular sclerosis, mixed cellularity, lymphocyte-rich, lymphocyte-depleted, and lymphocyte-predominant. Now, I'll just take us back just one moment to 1926, when a Dr. Fox was able to examine the original cases that was described by Thomas Hodgkins. Now, he had six cases, plus the one, but the six cases were examined. Now, because he was, uh, uh, Thomas Hodgkins was an anatomist and preserved things, they had preserved these six cases. Ah. And of those six cases, three had classic Reed Sternberg cells, so were Hodgkins lymphoma. But one was a non-Hodgkins lymphoma, one was TB, and one was due to syphilis. This just highlights even the initial classification that lymph nodes are hard and lymphomas are hard. And so we're going to bring in an expert to help us sort out some of this information because we need help in this area and to try and work out how do we diagnose this best. And this expert has been on this podcast before. There's a small lump just above my collarbone where that scar is. And uh, I was getting everyone to feel it and poke it, which I probably shouldn't have. But I was like, I didn't know what it was. Um, it was a, it was the size of a pea to begin with. They had to put a needle in um, and sort of poke it around to try and get some of the, what, the liquid that was inside it to test it. Um, it was so painful. Like, I hate needles, but even in my arm, never mind having it in my neck. So I hated that. Um, 
And then when the test results came back, then she said that it was Hodgkin's. And then she said it was a type of lymph cancer. And um, I don't know, I can't really remember how I reacted. Let's continue with this pathological life now. And we're welcoming back to the podcast for his second visit, uh, Dr. Brad Webster. Welcome back, Brad. Thanks for having me. I should mention, of course, you're a histopathologist with a special interest in lymphoma. So let's start with the definition of terms. How do you define lymphoma? So a lymphoma is a malignant tumor of lymphocytes. Um, and lymphocytes are the cells that are responsible for uh, adaptive immunity. So adaptive immunity is an antigen-specific immune response. So it's, it's something that requires prior exposure to a pathogen and then it develops memory. So the next time you encounter that pathogen, um, your immune spot response is, is quicker and stronger. So that's essentially what we're trying to do when we vaccinate. Um, we're trying to mm-hmm. um, trigger this memory so that when your body is exposed to the pathogen again, um, it can, you know, produce this uh, protective immune response. So lymphocytes are divided into two um, groups, broadly speaking. You have your B cells, which are responsible for antibody production, and you've got your T cells, which are um, responsible for cell-mediated immunity. So in particular, the T cells are important for viral immunity and tumor um, immunity. So lymphocytes traffic around the body so you've probably heard of a lymph node so Mm -hmm. lymphocytes will move between lymph nodes and also through lymph and lymph is um, the fluid in the intercellular spaces in your tissues so that flows back through a lymphatic system and will flow through numerous lymph nodes and then ultimately back into the bloodstream and it's in the lymph nodes that the lymphocytes are exposed to foreign antigens so essentially the lymph node is is built so that the lymphocytes can be exposed to foreign antigen and can then hopefully find the antigen for which the lymphocyte ah, is specific right and then under uh, and then that leads to the immune response so when i say the lymphocytes are waiting for their the antigen for which they're specific so b, t- b cells and t cells have a very very specific um receptor so in b cells it's a immunoglobulin or an antibody in t cells it's a t cell receptor and they're able to, de- uh, to develop this uh, amazing um, specificity by when they're first being, when these cells are first differentiating, um, there's essentially a process of controlled mutation. So there's um, DNA breaks and um, induced mutation that hopefully develops um, a, a very unique and specific receptor. And when that specific t or b cell finds its antigen then it starts to proliferate and differentiate and then that's what produces the immune response so when we're looking then at lymphoma so this is a malignant transformation so is it part of it's hard to say we we have two classifications of lymphoma effectively a non-hodgkin's lymphoma and a hodgkin's lymphoma now how do we Classified because effectively we've got a diagnosis and everything else fits into the other category. Is that right? Yeah, so lymphoma, broadly speaking, is divided into non-Hodgkin's or Hodgkin's lymphoma. So the majority are non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. But within that group, there is an array of different entities or classifications. So the WHO have a classification system. And the aim is to try and pr- to pull out these well-defined entities that have... Um, 
particular sort of diagnostic criteria and that have value from a, a prognostic and therapeutic point of view. So there's there's a range of things that go into making that um, that classification. So in the past, it was based on cell morphology. So is it a small cell? Is it intermediate? Is it large? Um, and then we had some new technologies so we could phenotype. We could look at what's on the cell surface. Um, so we can classify it by is it of B cell origin or is it of T cell origin? And there's another cell type called NK cells, but we won't go into that. Um, so some lymphomas have specific um, surface markers that we can look at. Then we have you know genetic changes. So some lymphomas have um, very specific um, tra genetic translocations. And then, of course, there are the clinical features. So all those are brought together to create a specific lymphoma entity. Now, if we go on to Hodgkin's lymphoma, Hodgkin's lymphoma can be divided into classic and non-classical subtypes. So the classic subtype is about 90% of Hodgkin's lymphoma. And there are four different histological patterns. And that's really only important for the pathologist. Mm -hmm. um, there are some differences in clinical presentation in terms of you know the age of the patient or the, the favored site of involvement but essentially once staging has occurred so staging is we look at which nodal groups are involved um, there's not really any difference as far as um, you know treatment or prognosis right okay so then when we look at the challenge is there's many causes for lymphadenopathy, so for big lymph nodes then. Uh, clearly, they're not all lymphoma, and we all know that, you know, neck glands get swollen when, you know, you've got a sore throat, something to that effect. Uh, is Do we have many causes? How many, What's the common causes for lymph lymphadenopathy that you would talk to a GP about? Yeah, so, I mean, when you think about the role of a lymph node, it's essentially to elicit an immune response so lymphadenopathy will occur so lymphadenopathy is enlargement of the lymph node and so that can occur in a reactive context so that might be um, there's adjacent infection or inflammation maybe you've got a spider bite and in the lymph node that drains that site that will become enlarged it might be a little bit tender i mean i, I think everyone can relate to that mm -hmm. where you've got you know some enlarged glands in your neck um but there are other causes of lymphadenopathy and the ones that we worry about are neoplastic, so tumour causes. So one cause, neoplastic cause, would be a metastasis from um, a carcinoma or a melanoma. And then, of course, given we're talking about lymphoma, um, a lymphoma can cause uh, lymphadenopathy because these uh, malignant lymphocytes have receptors that traffic them around to the lymph nodes Um Although lymph, although lymphomas tend to be in lymph nodes, they can occur in extranodal sites. Um, they can occur in the spleen. They can occur in the um, liver. And then each tissue um, seems to have some sort of lymphoid tissue associated with it. So the gastrointestinal tract can develop lymphoma. The lung can develop lymphoma. Mm. Um, pretty much any site in the body can, in theory, have a lymphoma. So with investigations, so main investigations with uh, lymph nodes. So we have an FNA, so we stick a needle in, pull some cells out. We have flow cytometry, so we pull some cells out and we run it through a machine uh, and tag it. You have a core biopsy and we have an excisional biopsy. 
is there a preference for it from a histological perspective? What is the best bang for your buck with regards to a GP or radiologist when we're doing investigations for lymphadenopathy? Yeah, so there's a few, there's different sort of modalities that you can use, like you described. Um, an FNA is a fine needle aspirate, so that's the least invasive process. It's relatively simple, quick to do, um, but it does have limitations. So when you think about what you're doing with an FNA, you're putting a needle in and you're drawing some cells out and then smearing them on a slide. So any architecture that you had within that node, it's basically the these cells have been put in a blender and just spread out. So that architecture is gone. We're just looking at the cell morphology. So it's good if you think there's a possibility that that node is enlarged because of a metastatic carcinoma or a melanoma because they, in general, look quite different to a lymphoma. Um, even a high-grade lymphoma, um, you'll at least be able to tell that you're dealing with a malignant process. When we're talking on the sort of more indolent or low-grade spectrum of lymphomas, it's, it's more difficult because these low-grade lymphomas are usually composed of small lymphocytes, which are basically what the lymph node is normally composed of and because we've lost that architecture it's it can be difficult to tell if we're dealing with a reactive node or a low-grade lymphoma so it is a, it is less sensitive in that respect the good thing with fna so is that you can use the material that you get and send it for flow cytometry so flow cytometry like you said is looking at the cell surface markers on each individual cell but of course, there are limitations there. So it's a sa- there's the sampling limitation, but we're only looking at a portion of the node. And there are some circumstances where you can detect a monoclonal population of lymphocytes. So when we say monoclonal, we mean that it's derived from the single cell type. So when we think monoclonal, we usually think neoplastic. But in some circumstances, you can detect a monoclonal population and it doesn't necessarily equate to lymphoma. And that's why we need the histological, or at least the cytological correlation. Um, I'll just add, since we're talking about Hodgkin's lymphoma, uh, it, it's, it's probably good if I go back to talk about the difference between a Hodgkin's and a non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Mm-hmm. So in a non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, the majority of the cells that we see are neoplastic. Whereas in a Hodgkin's lymphoma, the actual neoplastic cell is a very small proportion of the overall mass of the tumor. So it could be as little as one in a thousand to one in a hundred of the cell population are neoplastic. Now, if you are looking for that on flow cytometry, you're probably not going to be able to pick that up. And same with an FNA, you know, you're looking for maybe just a handful of, uh, of cells out of you know hundreds or thousands. So for that reason, Hodgkin's lymphoma is better assessed on a histological specimen and that could be a core biopsy or an excision biopsy would still be pretty hard to get on a core biopsy so you would sit there yeah it can be so sometimes you're lucky and you can you can see the the neoplastic cells so they're reed sternberg cells or hodgkin cells Um, sometimes you just don't have enough on the core biopsy so the core biopsies are very you know still small pieces of tissue might only be a millimeter or two thick Depending upon what you sample, you could miss the diagnostic areas. Yeah. So if if it's suspicious but not absolutely diagnostic, then we'd suggest an excision biopsy of that lymph node. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to work out because because they are the malignant cells are so small in a pretty much in a sea of lymph. Uh, 
the pathology behind it, is it because it causes such an inflammatory response that that cause that they get so large? Or is it, uh, again, I'm not quite sure how, <laughs> how it fits in. Yeah. So, I mean, maybe if I can go back and talk about what why we actually separate out Hodgkin's lymphoma from non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And there's a few reasons. Um, I mean, there's the historical reasons that it tends to affect um, you know younger people although there is a second peak in the elderly um, it has particular sites of involvement so it likes the cervical nodes or it's, pr- it's primarily a nodal based disease so extra nodal disease is pretty uncommon um, it likes the cervical nodes and it can involve the mediastinal and um, paraortic nodes for example um, it has a sort of a, quite a, a, a typical pattern of spread so it tends to spread to contiguous node groups and the main difference is in the actual biology of the neoplastic cell. So um, we talked before about, you know, non-Hodgkin's lymphomas being B cell and T cell. There are other cell types that we don't go into, but the neoplastic cell in a Hodgkin's lymphoma doesn't fall neatly into that category. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, you know, first of all, they're, they're very rare. Um, they're large, they're multi-lobated, so they look very different to a, you know, a normal B cell. But people have done studies into this where they've been able to actually dissect out individual cells and they've found that it, it actually is of B cell origin. But it, it, it's what's called a, has a crippled B cell um, you know, expression, gene expression profile. So it's, it's a B cell that has lost the capacity to behave like a B cell. Uh, although it does express some of the markers that a B cell would. So a B cell typically expresses CD20. That's a, a B cell marker. And in Hodgkin's lymphoma, it loses that. Um, although other B cell markers can be positive. Um, so in t- to answer your question about why are there so many other cells in there, the theory is is that these neoplastic cells are producing um, you know, substances, whether they're cytokines, um, that are attracting in all these reactive cells. So when you actually look at the the lymph node of a Hodgkin's lymphoma, most of it is reactive. So there's lymphocytes, there's histiocytes, there's mm-hmm. eosinophils, and scattered in amongst there, there are going to be a few of these Hodgkin Reed Sternberg cells. Is there any advice that you can provide to GPs about how you would best manage? Like if someone's coming in, you've got lymph nodes, everything. Is it a how far is Hodgkin's on the list, do you think? Yeah, so I think it depends on the um, the characteristics of the lymphadenopathy. So, you know, every, people throughout their life are going to have enlarged lymph nodes if they've got an infection or a bite, um, they've had a you know, surgery, um, you know, the wound healing might cause the draining nodes to be a bit uh, larger. But the worrying features are if you have a large node and then you know, what is a large node? When you start talking about, you know, above one or two centimeters, it's sort of getting into what I, what I would think would be a large node. Um, if there's lymphadenopathy that's either persistent or progressive, that's concerning. If there's lymphadenopathy in multiple sites or if there's the absence of some sort of initiating factor for the lymphadenopathy. Um, the age is obviously, you know, important. So, Older people, if they have a history of malignancy elsewhere, um, you know, you might be thinking it could be a metastasis of a carcinoma. Um, if there are B symptoms, so we didn't touch on that, but 
um, lymphomas can be can have associated B symptoms, and these are the things like um, weight loss, night sweats, and fever. So when when you start to see those, you, you might think um, that you're dealing with a lymphoma. Um, you, when you have young people and they've got cervical lymphadenopathy, I, I think you need to have Hodgkin's lymphoma in mind. Um, and often we will get FNAs initially as a as kind of to assess um, the lymph nodes in a young person. And as I said before, you know, the sensitivity isn't that high for an FNA of a lymph node. So once you get a result back for that FNA, you, you kind of need to keep going, I think, um, if the lymphadenopathy isn't explained. So the next step would be to consider a histological specimen. So you might start with a core biopsy or you could go straight to an excision biopsy depending upon the context. Just before everybody leaves, I just want to throw one question without notice at you both, and it may be beyond your areas of expertise. I hear a lot of people in allied health massage therapists talking about having a lymph massage. That seems quite topical and superficial to me compared to the depth you've just taken it. <laughs> Is that one of those things that should go with the liver cleansing diet and it's, <laughs> and it's all just um, a nice way to spin some extra bucks? I'm just going to say no comment. For that. Okay. <laughs> Travis, do you have more courage? <laughs> we both know I don't. If you want an answer, there's a lot of fads that come out. And so there's what is liver detoxic you know, what is liver detoxification? Well, are you actually detoxifying? Well, that's the job of the liver. Uh, mm. So you're always detoxifying it. If you're not having something that you're doing, probably the best thing you could not do is drink, drink alcohol for a while because that will stop the fatty liver. Uh, is there a lymph massage? Well, as soon as you move your body, lymph is going into, you know, the fluid's going into lymph. So are you moving along? You're moving along with everything, you know, yeah. veins, blood's moving, everything. Going for so, a run's probably yeah. <laughs> Exactly, you know. Uh, you sit there and go, you see, you know, the, the people doing ice baths. So, yes, it will be a fad thing. It will be, uh, you know, the next thing that come up but uh, as I say your body is pretty good at uh, managing most things uh, I don't know what a lymph um, massage. massage is actually meant to do mm-hmm. um, but just moving about will actually do the same thing <laughs> if someone squeezes your muscle yeah you're going to get lymph happening type thing that's why um, okay. I just think that having a massage is probably sometimes nicer than moving about <laughs> <laughs> well that's a completely different thing but you're not doing it for your lymph <laughs> thank you again Dr. Brad Webster thank you I think because I took quick steps and um, got checked out and then thankfully my doctor recognised that it probably was cancer so I got rapid treatment, I had a really good prognosis and really good outcome um, so I would definitely recommend that if anybody's concerned about lumps or if they've got any questions about a change in their body then they do get that checked out. I got some great advice to say listen to your body um, and I did do that so um, I was told, you know, if you feel tired, well, have a sleep. Or if you feel, uh, I don't know, if you don't feel like doing something, don't do it. And that was quite eye-opening for me because normally if I feel tired, I'd think, oh, you've got to battle on, you've got to keep going. But it was actually just listen to your body do that. And, and my body responded really well. All right. In the final part of this episode, uh, Travis, um, how do we treat this? You know, and, and, and once we 
tackle that. Let's go and just refresh ourselves on the, the cause. Okay. The treatment was even has its own historical story. Uh, so the, this starts with uh, Henry Kaplan in 1950s, who was a, a professor of radiology at Stanford. He was interested in the use of X-rays to pre- penetrate solid tumours, so things like lung tumour or breast cancer or lymphoma. What he ended up doing in 1953 was convincing a whole bunch of physicists and engineers to design for him an accelerator so that he could try and treat these things. <laughs> and, and this ended up being installed in 1956. And what he ended up doing as well was he, from his neighbour, grabbed a huge block of lead shielding and put a pinhole through it so that he could then direct this huge radiation, radiation dose to where he wanted. Mm -hmm. And so he then wanted to manage these lymphomas and see, can I manage it by treating it with radiation and kill the cells? Uh, There'd been experiments in the past. A a Swiss radiologist, uh, Rene Gilbert, had tried to treat uh, Hodgkin's uh, lymphoma with radiation. The problem was the patients often relapsed in adjacent areas of the field of radiation. So you would treat an area and that would be fine, but then adjacent areas would get Hodgkin's lymphoma as well. So it was considered unsuccessful. A Canadian surgeon, Vera Peters, at Toronto General Hospital started uh, testing extended field radiation, so going for a large area of lymph nodes. Mm -hmm. Now, this appeared to be successful, but the problem is the data was retrospective. So looking back, Mm. it didn't have as much credence as saying, well, how do I test two different areas simultaneously Ah. and see if I get a better result? Kaplan set out to prove this. And can Hodgkin's lymphoma be cured by radiation? Is it manageable? And so he, he set out two very separate patient groups. One, he did extended field radiation, and the other one, he did targeted limited therapy. He did meticulous stratification of patient cohort to make sure that they were in the appropriate category. And so even to the point of patients having laparoscopy and biopsies to make sure that they were in the right category to confirm Hodgkin's was only where they thought it was. And what ended up happening was he was able to prove that localized therapy to localized disease could be treated effectively by radiation. And so what we know from the pathogenesis of this disease is it rises in a single lymph node or a chain of lymph nodes and it spreads to adjacent nodes. But we talk about constitutional symptoms. So these are the B symptoms. And and where B symptoms come from, it, it comes from a person named Ann Arbor who staged lymphomas from one to four and then put systemic symptoms into category either A or B. And A means absent or B present. And so when we talk about B symptoms, they're talking about systemic symptoms. And that's what, you know, fever, night sweats and weight loss tend to suggest it's broader than just localized. And so, I mean, there's other weird symptoms like, you know, severe itching and your fatigue. Uh, but there's this odd one, which there's increased sensitivity to the effect of alcohol. So if someone's got this and they drink alcohol, they can sometimes get pain in their lymph node, in large lymph nodes because of... I'm not sure what reaction, but that seems to be a you know associated sim- symptom, and they can also have present with fever of unknown origin. So it's just something to consider. Mm. 
But what we know from their, the histology is that nodular sclerosis and lymphocyte predominant usually present without systemic features. So that can be a sort of a stage one and two. And then if we get ones like mixed cellularity and lymphocyte depletion, they can have those B symptoms like, you know, uh, fever, night sweat, or weight loss, and they can present at a later stage of stage three and four. So that just sort of gives an indication of where the disease is at. And what we know, as we've discussed, is the spread is predictable. So it goes from lymph nodes, eventually it can go to spleen, then it can go to liver, and then it can go to bone marrow mm. and other organs. So we know the progression, but the fortunate thing is, once it's picked up, we manage it really well. Thank you again, Dr. Travis Brown. This Pathological Life is produced by ClinPath Pathology in South Australia. Episode notes, references, and learning objectives, when applicable, can be found at thispathologicallife.com.au. And you can contact the hosts on Twitter via at Dr. Travis Brown or at Steve Davis. Thanks again for listening. And just a reminder, if you haven't done it yet, have a quick search in your podcast app for our second series, This Medical Life. Dr. Travis Brown has rolled up some extra guests, some extra topics, and we continue the story there. And we'd love to have you along.